Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Megan Lee. It's a standard rule of writing that if you want your protagonist to look heroic and competent, you've got to get a powerful and menacing antagonist. In the past, writers have used AI as an overwhelming and hostile force, while others have chosen gods. But Emma Mieko Kandon has taken the unusual step of pairing the two. She has created a world where, according to the official book blurb, war machines and AI gods run amok. And when a robot god dies, it kills everything it touches, with a few important exceptions. Emma is joining us tonight to talk about her flawed characters, her amazing world building, and an AI apocalypse with a difference. Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Please tell us more about yourself and about your book. Thank you for having me. Um, absolutely delighted to be here. And that intro feels so right to my experience of this book and this story and figuring out what it is. So yeah, I am a writer of books. I have two under my belt as of now. My technical debut was Star Wars Ronin, which was paired with the Star Wars Visions project. So it was kind of an AU of Star Wars through the lens of Japanese folklore and history. I myself am a mixed race writer of queer, disabled, various sorts of marginalizations. I used to um, make the joke that I was someone's uh, deviant art OC, but <laughs> I'm not sure that's really respectful to myself. So I try to avoid it these days. But yeah, The Archive Undying is my original debut. It's the book I had actually managed to sell just before I got hired for the, the Ronin Visions project. But this one is about a world in which we have these entities that are referred to as AI. I sort of cheekily called them autonomous intelligences to signal that they are not what we would recognize as artificial intelligence of today, both because that word gets flung around rather easily, especially in our current time where people are trying to use it to market their algorithms. And it would be, the, the ones in this book are more akin to what you would call general intelligence. But they're also, because they're very much in conversation with those AI apocalypse stories that you referred to in the intro and came from my abiding frustrations with a lot of those stories they are functionally superpowered, but because I wanted to write artificial intelligences that were actually more rooted in the reality of human intelligence, which is both extremely physical because it's neurological and your neurology is your physiology. And it's your interpretation of your sensory world that creates your perceptive experience. But they're also, therefore, fundamentally extremely emotive and driven by the way that cognition is driven by emotion or rather like the raw data that becomes emotion. So this is a world where we have that kind of 
artificial intelligence, and they simultaneously are unspeakably powerful and ability and have the ability to manipulate not just their own bodies, but the bodies of others and the world around them. And they are also experiencing in this world for, at the start of the book, unknown reasons, occasionally dying. And because they have this tendency to acquire humans to become part of their uh, functionally psychic network and rule their own little city-states, when they die, there are consequences both for the physical architecture of the place and for the individuals who are part of their network. And if you are especially deeply integrated with their network at the time of their death, there are unique consequences for you. So our protagonist is one of those people who has been fundamentally altered by the death of the AI in the city to which he was born and in which he was raised. And since its death about 20 years ago, he has been on the run in large part because there are other people in this world who aim to take the corpses of these dead AIs and turn them into mechs, mechs which allow them to rule the cities that have lost their AI god, but also to defend that city from the remnants of other AI gods, which shamble across the land in this kind of terrifying Jurassic Park, feral Gundam kind of way. Uh, <laughs> so our protagonist begins having been on the run for 20 years, not wanting to be involved with this militaristic authoritarian organization, not wanting to be inextricably linked to his dead god, and living life on the fringe in kind of a disaster piece theater sort of way. But right at the beginning of the book, ends up stumbling into a string of events that inexorably draw him back home. Well, I have to say that I enjoyed it immensely. It was not normally the sort of thing that I would read. And there was so much to take in and so challenging. But for someone who doesn't read a lot of AI stuff, it still presented it as something new and unique that I hadn't seen in anything that I'd seen before. When we were putting these questions together, Megan put forward the idea that the Undying Archive is described as mecha fiction, as in M-E-C-H-A, mecha for mechanism, which is something I've never heard of at all. So would you agree that the Undying Archive fits into this subgenre? And if so, how would you describe it to those of us like myself who haven't really heard of this genre before? So that's a term that I believe originates in Japan and with anime, but also their physical uh, live action performances. So essentially like these giant robots that are one, large, larger than humans, and two, piloted by an individual inside of it. So, you know, some of the most famous examples of it are probably like Evangelion, Yes. Is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Gundam, which is a long-running series that currently got one called The Witch from Mercury, which I hugely recommend. It blows me out of the water every week. Uh, episode 20, if any of you are watching, just aired and left me a little catatonic for about an hour. <laughs> it's a great study in craft. But yeah, so that's like fundamentally what Mecca is 
it's not super common in, I would say, Western writing. Sometimes there's analogs made to military sci-fi, but it's actually rather different because the focus is generally more on bodies and pilots and the relationship between the human and the machine and the machine being used for war, which is 0% surprising given that it's a genre that originated in Japan after World War II in an era where a lot of people, a lot of artists in Japan were working through some feelings about the state and war because of, you know, Japan's role as a perpetrator of tremendous violence as well as the victim of tremendous violence. So that was where I would say Mecca began really as the genre one would refer to as Mecca. Okay, so as many people have picked up just in that conversation, you are kind of an anime uber fan, which (laughs) I love because I also love anime. So (laughs) this is me trying to be like, yeah, let's talk about anime. Yes. But I just, you know, it was curious, like, you you know, you've talked about mecha fiction sort of really originating from Japan and, and really came up through anime, at least popularized often through that. I mean, what sort of anime tropes specifically influenced you when you were developing the book? Uh, I would say probably none of them consciously, really. <laughs> um, I, I make the reference to this book being kind of anime nonsense in part because I know it's there kind of in my hindbrain ever since I got asked, like, uh, I did an interview for a book that was about like how JRPGs have impacted Western culture. And part of it was asking sci-fi fantasy writers, like, how has it impacted your work? And it made me really introspective about has it impacted my work? Because <laughs> I hadn't really played any until I was in my later teens, but it certainly felt like it was there. And then just as I've gone forward, I've thought about the ways in which I've probably impact been impacted by its sensibilities or like the kinds of fiction I become drawn to. And I've found that I often like nothing more than a really, really well-executed melodrama. And by that, I mean, like, I think Shakespeare is really melodrama. (laughs) So uh, anything that has, like, really large, really intense emotions, and there's a lot of that in anime. And So much. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I, I was recently chatting with someone who was like, yeah, I mean, I like it in theory, but it feels like everyone's always screaming. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, yeah. So I love it when something is really in touch with like a really strong, really focused, not necessarily uncomplicated or simple, but just a really raw feeling. And I think that comes through often in anime, though sometimes it can be really masked by a particular trope. So it varies, obviously. Anime also is like a million different genres. I have my specific interests among those genres. Like you will not often find me watching what they call slice of life anime, 
which is mostly just like people being normal and having fun together. <laughs> I, I love a slice of life anime, though, like yeah. trying to explain to someone why I was watching an anime about young boys swim team was interesting. Oh. But free it was so goofy it was really funny i thought it was cute on that level it was cute (laughs) yeah no so i'm i'm often watching things like you know gundam which from mercury which is gundam is a mecha genre that has or not a genre it's a it's a franchise but it does constant au's of itself and it has a new au right now that's done in collaboration with some of the folks who worked on revolutionary girl Utena, which is kind of famously a very, it's Yuri, which is the subgenre, meaning essentially sapphic. And it's a classic, and this one is so sapphic. It's lesbians in love. Uh, There's jokes going around the fandom right now, like, if you dare to be heterosexual, they will kill one of you in this story. And I'm like, oh no, it's true. But It's also so much of what Gundam is known for, which is really in touch with that idea of the danger of these machines because they're really only built that way to be weapons. And they're really centering that tension in this particular tale because the characters who we're following are these young teenagers who are in this school for like the technical elite and the ones we're specifically following want desperately to use this technology which has been used for the integration of human and machine and previously been used to pilot these terrifying Gundam mecha as medical technology which was its original use before the need for funds drove them to start creating stuff that could be used for violence. And it's just so good. It's so, it's drama and betrayal and this tender desire to connect that is foiled by politics and human greed and grief. It's, mm, I love it. (laughs) Anime is not something that I I know a lot about, but I do know from reading the news that at the moment, like you said earlier, Emma, AI stuff is all over the place with warnings and messages and morals and all sorts of things. So I wondered if AI issues in real life was something that you drew inspiration from either directly or perhaps like you did with the anime stuff, sort of on a more subconscious level. Okay, so this one was much more intentional, and I apologize if I have a sudden interruption because the youngest baby cat in this household is desperately trying to play with me right now. That's Um, okay. We're a cat podcast. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so I started writing this in 2017, and in 2017, I had just gotten out of a master's in clinical psychology. And whether because the news cycle was dwelling on it at that point or because it just happened to come up often where I specifically was, I was being exposed to a lot of discourse about AI technology. There was a lot of discussion of machine learning, which is a lot of the things we're currently calling AI are built on. Um, And at the time, I was also exposed to 
a lot of doomsday fantasies about the singularity and how machines were going to take over. And I concluded at the time that these fantasies were really not about AI because knowing what I knew about the human brain as a consequence of acquiring that master's meant I understood that our artificial intelligences were nowhere near capable of what we would consider like human-like sentience. (laughs) And in order to be that, they would have to be built more complexly, uh, perhaps even on different principles, because human brains are not algorithmic. And so that left me wondering, what are these AI doomsday fantasies about then, really, if they're not about real technology that we have? or real technology that's even a remote threat these days. And I realized they're essentially very capitalist doomsday fantasies. They're specifically about this idea that the people, that if people acquire power who are not the people who currently have power, they will behave in ways identical to how they currently behave under late stage capitalism. And they will observe the world through the lens of what is better for production, what is disposable, how do you maximize this or that, which is a very algorithmic way of thinking. And sure, if we built incredibly competent algorithms and gave them control of our lives, maybe that's a real danger we have. But frankly, we're already kind of in that danger from real human beings. (laughs) So what I wanted to write was in part like an argument with that specific doomsday mythology and to instead write about artificial intelligences, which were that kind of thing that we posit we're afraid of in those mythologies, but which would cause apocalyptic events much more rooted in a human-like experience of the world, if that is what we are positing as intelligence. So yeah, that was there right from the start. (laughs) And, you know, I have my own opinions about like what's going on now. And I think there's a lot of like really interesting stuff you can read. I can't think of any article names right off the top of my head, but if you look for anyone talking about AI as a catchphrase or a keyword that essentially Silicon Valley is trying to sell you right now because they think it sounds sexier to call an algorithm an AI than an algorithm. That is 100% what is going on. Generative algorithms also have bring up like a lot of concerns and issues around like creative property and uh, which, you know, is an inherently capitalist problem that we unfortunately must contend with because that is the society in which we live. But yeah, so <laughs> that's where it all comes from. I have to say that The New Scientist is an excellent source of story ideas if you uh, pick it up and just flick through its pages. <laughs> so I just finished reading Emily Cheshire's Some Desperate Glory. And I don't know if you've read it, Emma. I but... have it open right next to my couch in my little reading spot. So I'm right in the beginning. <laughs> Okay. Well, don't worry. I won't, I won't do spoilers. But I saw some of like the ideas of what you were talking about there about having an AI or in, in that book, it's, it's like a God machine, an all-knowing machine, which makes decisions and creates kind of apocalyptic 
things happen based on its decisions. But then it becomes a philosophical discussion around, well, the nature of choices and the fact that any choice is going to have negative consequences somewhere. You know, I can choose and I can try to make the best decision for me and my people, but that might not be the best decision for somebody else. Or I'm trying to mow the lawn so I can appreciate my garden, but then that is worse for the bees. I don't know, you know, whatever it is. Uh (laughs) But yeah, I find that really interesting. And and I like this, if if it is a trend, I mean, I'm seeing two books, so I'm going to call it a trend, Um, (laughs) where we're, we're actually thinking about AI not necessarily being evil or not somehow just being there to take away people's jobs or to... I don't know, create anything else, but responding in ways that humans respond. I think that's more interesting because, of course, AIs are trained by humans on human-created data. You know, if we give it junk in, it'll give us junk out. And if the junk going in is all human emotions, human thoughts, all of that sort of stuff, I feel like, (laughs) of course, an AI is going to be just as flawed and respond in very similar ways to humans instead of necessarily this kind of black and white machine sort of thing that we've seen and represented in the past. Right. Because I mean, like the thing about a a black and white machine is that it actually isn't because as you noted, there are critical design flaws in terms of its input and its schematics. And the things I'm calling AIs in, in the archive undying really just like aren't that at all. The assumption is that at some point in the past, human beings created a thing that processes the world like we do, which is to say that it is sense first and everything after that. So you acquire data from being alive and being in the world and experiencing it through processing that sensory experience, which can be as simple as putting your foot on the ground and understanding what is underneath your foot, though that's actually not simple at all, to as complex as like your interpersonal relationships with another person, which are extremely complex and sophisticated. And that is the root of cognition for these machines. Like it's particularly their understanding of their relationships with people. That is where their intelligence is located. And it's not made them emotionally geniuses. It's not made them perfect at interacting with individuals because they have feelings too. <laughs> and unfortunately, feelings plague a lot of society. And they also inform like the kind of structures of power we create. And I think the other critical locus of both in Some Desperate Glory and in uh, The Archive Undying is the question of, so however your cognition comes about and however your cognition exists, whether it's sophisticated or not, a huge question is who has the power in this relationship? And when you attribute a lot of power to a machine, specifically if the people who have created it attribute a lot of power to the machine because they, in fact, want to dictate how the world will work. So they are the ones with the founding power. Or if these machines themselves, as in the archive and dying, have power unto themselves and are 
in some ways, perhaps grappling with that fact, what are the consequences of it? So it's never just thought. It's also a calculation of like, who has the ability to change what someone else's experience is? And does that person subsequently have a choice of their own? I love this idea of founding power that at the end of the day, the AIs are made up of those who create it. So it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of human, but an amalgamation and something new and something old. You were talking earlier about, you know, capitalism and all this kind of thing. It, it almost feels like we're just making more humans, but in the form of AI. It's really, it's really mind boggling when you get down to the intricacies of it all. Yeah. <laughs> this is, uh, I really wanted to tackle this mythology through the lens of like, yeah, those two factors, just thinking about like how actual artificial intelligence might function. And or I, I guess I used to say that like, I didn't think we were going to see anything like true artificial intelligence in my lifetime. But now I'm questioning what my definition of intelligence is, because I'm still skeptical of us seeing human-like sapience uh, that's been artificially created. But now I'm finding myself having to sit down and think about what I would call non-human intelligence. Because yeah, no, I I, I have to read more about that because uh, I'm sure people have written a lot and I'm just not very educated on the matter. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit of a minefield. Complicated, but fascinating. <laughs> I'm a bit of a fan of apocalyptic fiction, and since the pandemic, I have to admit I have a preference for fiction that happens after the apocalypse. I don't really like seeing the world going to shit at the time because we've all lived through that and it's not quite distant enough yet for me to find it fun. But obviously in yours, the AI apocalypse has happened and it's definitely everybody picking up the pieces. So given that at the moment we're all on the other side of the AI apocalypse and everybody go, oh, there's going to be an apocalypse coming from AI. Why did you decide, you know what, I'm going to set it in the aftertimes rather than taking us through how it all collapses? So I actually also have like this enduring fascination with apocalypse. Uh, the study of it is called eschatology, which I had to learn because uh, I just ended up really fascinated by it at some point in undergrad. But what I've been drawn to is actually not apocalypse or post-apocalypse fiction so much as what people sometimes call now post-post-apocalypse, which is the idea of like there has been some sort of catastrophic event and we are now looking at the way people have rebuilt the world in the aftermath. And I would say that in the Archive and Dying, it is a world in which there have been a series of apocalypses in miniature because every time one of these AI beings dies or um, in the parlance of the story corrupts, it's like a miniature apocalypse contained within that state that there are consequences for everyone with whom that state interacted with in some way. And there is like this general sense that there was a point at which corruption began as a phenomenon, which is why they live in the world that they currently do. But a consequence of these ongoing events is that history has become quite broken and muddled because there's just been a loss of information and archival understanding of the world. So what I find myself particularly interested in is 
similar, I guess, to my frustrations with the doomsday apocalypse of the AI in the capitalist lens, the idea that people become some kind of worst version of ourselves in the context of world-shattering events. And certainly some people do fall into that panic state, but consistently what we actually see in the aftermath of disaster is people coming together and protecting each other and feeding each other and clothing each other and keeping each other warm. And those who can't care for themselves are cared for. And I really wanted to center that in this world of incredible consequence. So there's this like underlying practicality you see in a lot of uh, the different groups you interact with, like the salvage rats we meet in the beginning are these people who wander around the wilds where these giant feral, I guess you could say undead robots roam. And what they're doing is they're aiming to like acquire some of the technology from these wandering robots and bring it back to society so it can be like sold and repurposed or who knows, maybe turned into someone's very expensive art piece. But the people who are going out to do this are putting themselves in incredible danger to do it for whatever reason they might have. And they also have a very fundamental, very basic understanding of, hey, you need to look out for your body. You need to look out for your health. You need to look out for your brain and your mental health. And we need to protect each other. We need to keep each other fed. And we need to watch each other's backs. And that's the apocalypse mindset that is ingrained in almost every person in this world because that was my assumption of what would happen in the context of a place that becomes very accustomed to the possibility of incredible disaster. People would know your best chance of survival is other human beings, so you have to figure out how to have a baseline understanding that courtesy means keeping other people alive. I loved how in the salvage rats bit, Everybody crowds around for Sunay's curry. And I'm like, yeah, that's totally what I'd be like. If someone offered me curry in a post, sorry, in a post post apocalyptic world, I'd be like, yeah. And, and then they all start trading with each other for the extra curry when he runs out. And I'm just like, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, curry in, in a post post apocalyptic world would be quite a commodity. I mean, what made you think of curry rather than, I don't know, chocolate or something? So the idea was that Sunay cooks. It's a thing he does because like a lot of other people in this world, he has a very strong understanding of, I need to have some kind of contribution to the people around me. And he also understands on a fairly like manipulative level, if I feed people good food, they will like me and they will want to keep me around. And so there's like a survival element for him of, I want people to be invested in me like surviving and He also has this underlying feeling of, I actually do want to feed people, but I don't want to think about it in those terms because that would make me feel too soft. (laughs) Um, But I've called him like a reverse magpie. You will see him at different points, like putting a little piece of candy in people's mouths or taking like trading cigarettes with folks. It's just this constant pattern of him finding ways to keep people not just 
fed, but fed well. Not just alive, but alive in a good way. And yeah, no, like that's, I think, a basic tenet shared throughout multiple subcultures you meet in this book, but also in specific with Sunai, yes, from a variety of different sources as he was coming up through the world, understood what he owes to other people as a consequence of being alive, but also what he can give to them just for sake of being alive. Not to be like party pooper negative (laughs) person over here, but uh, I feel like maybe you must have been really disappointed in the real life disasters of how we actually dealt with things. (laughs) I'm not disappointed in the individuals I know. I think the individuals I know were to a one, remarkable, spectacular, everything I hoped for. The people in power and the systems of power in which we live I don't really care for those, as you might have noticed. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yep. you know, like, <laughs> like mutual aid networks sprung up literally everywhere I knew. I myself am immunocompromised in a particular way that is very vulnerable to any respiratory illness. So COVID-19 being respiratory was critically dangerous for me. Everyone I knew in my, like, even outer friend circle was finding ways to check on me and to ensure that I was experiencing as little risk as possible. This is my understanding of people. My understanding of systems is adjacent and separate. <laughs> okay, fair. I think it's nice, though, that we, we're seeing stories where we do, yes, there can be something very depressing, like an apocalypse or bad shit happening, but good people doing good things. And I think that, you know, similarly to Charlotte, like I, I'm not so into reading about the apocalypse always because I think the world's got enough shit going on. Sometimes, you know, my escapism is something that tells me there's a better world out there or that it's something that we could aspire to. So for me, more hopeful science fiction is more interesting at the moment because you know i want to see the things that could happen maybe if we were all a bit nicer to each other (laughs) uh so yeah i'm i'm pleased that people like you are, are showing us characters who can take great adversity and find ways to enrich people's lives even if it is in a little way you know to get people to like him and look after him you know, when he needs it, because that's like, I don't know, just normal. Oh, it's 100% normal. It's just, uh, I, I guess I phrase it out that way more because it's a reflection of the very cynical place that you will often find Sunai living in, <laughs> where it's like, hey, doing nice things for people is just kind of a thing you can do. And hoping that they're nice to you in turn is just kind of a human thing to hope. Um, But just due to the nature of like where the character is, especially at the beginning of this story, which is is to say deeply mentally ill, unable to really characterize his own actions in a positive light. I think we've all been there too. (laughs) Oh yeah, no, for sure. You talked about there being lots of little apocalypses because there's lots of little sort of AI gods and the gods kind of interact and have almost city-states. And 
gods tend to rule over you know emotions or virtues or strengths and not necessarily cities you think about maybe the greek gods and they all have their own little sort of cities that look up to them but they're not as interconnected as the ai gods in your world and I, I don't really know whether I can call them a pantheon because they don't kind of work together and complement each other as kind of have their own little fiefdoms. So I wondered, without any spoilers, obviously, if you can give us an idea of how AI gods within your world are worshipped and what inspired you to create them as we see them on the page. Right. So this was partially a matter of like trying to sort out what I wanted these entities to look like if I was tackling a world in which I was having kind of a little bit of an argument with AI doomsday mythology, because that did require having, or it didn't require, I I chose to do it in a particular way where there were still AIs with an incredible amount of influence and authority and control. So the way in which they are referred to as gods and with like a, parlance of divinity is in tandem with a pre-existing syncretic religion, which has built up over time, you know, in a context of a world where sometimes vast troves of information are lost. So there is like this one book that off- that people often think of as like sort of fundamental to faiths, but it's a book with many different iterations. It's actually a collection of like songs and poems that people call the lay. And it espouses, people say, I don't know if it's actually in the text or not, this idea of sort of this multifaceted God across space and time, because this is a religion where space, the space-time continuum and quantum physics are wholly integrated with their understanding of like religious cosmology. But When people are referring to God in this book, they are just as often, if not more often, referring to this God, this multi-iterative God, as opposed to like an AI God. At one point, my wife was, after reading the book again, had been like, you know, I think something that people are possibly going to be struck by because I am having been raised in a pretty like culturally Christian place that this is very much not a culturally Christian take on religion. And I was like, yeah, you know, I guess not because for me, it feels pretty integrated with my understandings of how religion has operated in various parts of East Asia, including Japan, where it's sort of like this understanding of there's divinity and then there's divinity and then there's divinity and then there's your kitchen god, which is also a god. But you know, they're referred to as gods. And I would not say, however, that they are worshipped outside of the way in which you interact with them might involve a lot of respect for the miracle of life and intelligence, you know, or sanctity or ritual. Yeah. Does that, do you feel like that answers the question? (laughs) I feel like we could go around this question all day because there's, <laughs> there's so much to unpack there. And I mean, I know as a writer myself that when you create something like gods and AI and whatever, there's so many questions that you sometimes get your readers coming back and going, oh, yeah, you totally meant this. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I meant. And goes and <laughs> furiously for, <laughs> for the next one. 
I think that is the perfect place to stop on how religion and AI goes together and integrates and swamps humanity and enriches humanity and kills humanity and does all that kind of stuff. So I would like to say a huge thank you, Emma, for joining us to talk about your book, The Undying Archive. Um, It's been absolutely fabulous to have you and your cat on. Thank you for having me. It was an absolute delight. Your questions are so meaty. (laughs) So, you know, you you got me talking about anime and also like eschatology. So I I guess that's the gamut of my personality. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. We like it. (laughs) And I've learned a new word. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.